a privilege for me to be here again. Uh, I guess I'll get it out of the way now. If you're visiting at Veritas and you were looking forward to hearing Pastor Eric preach, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm not even a pastor, as was mentioned. Uh, but what for you is probably a disappointment for me is a great privilege to be with you guys again and to minister the Word of God uh, and to even extend a warm welcome from Emmanuel Baptist Church. We care uh, and love you guys, we care about you, and we love you, and we're very concerned about um, uh, about what the Lord is doing at your church and your faithfulness to the gospel, and we're very encouraged to hear uh, positive reports and, 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 the, and the work in the midst of your guys' church uh, from our God, and so we're very grateful uh, about you, and I'm very grateful to be here. Well, uh, even as was just read, I'm going to ask you uh, again to please open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 4. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11, as was mentioned, and I want us to read this text again before we pray uh, to, to one more time use this opportunity to kind of track the flow of Peter's uh, thoughts here, and then we'll pray, and we'll start. And if maybe you are visiting and you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, I'm sure you could find one in the back of the seat that's in front of you. I'd encourage you to take that copy as well as uh, uh, you'll see the text on the front of your bulletin. There are many ways to follow along. Again, that's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter again says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the sufficient Word of God. Let us come before God and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us first, that you looked upon our helpless state and that according to your great mercy, you caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even now, we thank you that our faith is being guarded by your power. Lord, we confess that glory and dominion belong to you alone. And we're grateful that you instruct us through your word and how we must live for your glory as we wait for the return of our precious Lord and Savior. And as we come before your word, I ask that you would help me by your spirit to minister your word to your people and that you would purify our souls by our obedience to the truth of your word and give all of us clarity and sobriety and understanding that the end of all things is at hand and that you call us to live for your glory in anticipation of what is to come. We ask in Jesus' name that you would bless the preaching of your word. Amen. In the fall of 1998, my family was granted asylum by the United States. And what that meant was that we were allowed to leave our home country of Ukraine and come to the United States permanently. Now, my parents refused to tell my brother, uh, me and my brother, the date of when we would fly out because they wanted it uh, to be a surprise. 
they wanted to wake us up one morning and tell us, that's it, we're going. So days went by and I noticed that my parents weren't planting mushrooms in their, uh, what's it called, the giant greenhouse for their business. You know, weeks went by and then we realized we didn't return to school after our winter break uh, like the rest of our friends. And then little by little we noticed uh, pieces of furniture go missing. Uh, and our parents were giving it away to their relatives. Then one day I came inside from playing outside and I noticed that the fridge was gone. <laughs> which really should have given things away. Uh, but my mom distracted, uh, distracted me by saying, you and your brother have to go clean because today we have a lot of our friends and, and family coming over for a big feast. Well, that night we ate everything. You know, mashed potatoes, beet salad, the purple fish dish, chicken jello. And if you don't know what chicken jello is, find a Russian-speaking friend at your church. <laughs> You'll be glad that you did. Uh, and, you know, and pickled everything. Anything edible was eaten or given away at the end of the night. So it was a big party. We ate, we cleaned up, we went to sleep. And the next morning, my brother and I were woken up and told by our parents that that's it. We're flying off to America in about four hours. Or rather, we're driving to the airport in about four hours. Okay, now, observing from the side, right, my parents probably looked very strange to others. Right? What's going on? They're ignoring their business. Uh, they're getting rid of everything. Their kids are out of school. <laughs> the fridge is gone. Right? If it wasn't for that vital detail. But, of course, the upcoming event of us going to America changed everything. Right? Nothing was the same. It was the single greatest shift of our lives. My parents were fo forced to alter their entire life based on this reality. This upcoming event changed everything. And in the text that we just read, we see something very similar. Peter says that for the Christian, there is a life-altering event that is set to take place. An event that will change everything. What Peter calls in verse 7, if you look at your Bibles, uh, as the end of all things. Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. And because that is true, it should impact how you live your life. It should redirect what you value. It should transform what you aspire and what you devote yourself and your time to. Peter makes a statement about the future that should impact the way we live our lives and that it should, it should change the way uh, and shape the behavior of his readers in their present moment. So what does Peter mean when he says in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand? Well, Peter is saying that all of the pivotal events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. Right? So if we think about the creation, the fall, the calling of Abraham, the exodus the kingdom of Israel, the exile in Babylon, and then the return, and then the coming of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to establish the church. Peter is saying these events have taken place. And now, he's talking about the last stage of a process, a process as well as its outcome or goal. Brothers and sisters, he says that the end of all things is at hand. And the next great event is the end of history as we know it in the return of Christ. I mean, do you realize this? And if you're a Christian, I'm sure you realize this, but maybe you haven't thought about this in a while. We're not waiting for anything else 
other than the return of Christ. This is it. And the whole New Testament emphasizes the expectation of the Lord's return. And here Peter is connecting the Lord's return with the judgment of God from verse 6. And he's implying that everything will be judged in reference to the resurrected Christ. And that perfect judgment is near because the resurrection and the ascension has already taken place. Which is why, listen close, if you're visiting here and you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, then let this be God's gracious warning to you. What is good news for us Christians is terrifying news for you if you continue to live in unbelief. For when Jesus returns, He will come to judge and He will judge eternally. He will punish eternally those who do not place their faith in Him. But the Lord is gracious. So dear friends, the time is now while you still have time. The time is now to repent of your sin and turn from your sin to Christ. Do not presume that you could outrun time. Look to Him as your Lord and Savior. Benefit now from Christ's life and from His death and from His resurrection by placing your trust and your faith in Him and in Him alone. Friend, that you may be forgiven of all of your sins, that you may be adopted into the family of God, and that you may even join Christians in looking forward to the return of our Lord and Savior. And my brothers uh, and sisters in Christ, the near yet future return of Christ, what for us is good news, is also our reason for living now. Which means that our lives must reflect this reality that, that the Lord is returning soon. We must be impacted now by what is to come at any moment. <clears throat> because it is no less, uh, it, for it is no more or less true that the end is near today than when Peter wrote this letter almost 2,000 years ago. And the return of Christ is a blessed reality. That's what we're waiting for. So then, let me ask you, what should the lives of Christians look like if they are to live in light of the uh, near return of Christ? Right? What should define our use of time? What should define our use of our resources? In our, next, uh, in our text, rather, I want you to notice four characteristics. I want you to notice four traits that Peter says are to define the life of every Christian. Every Christian, as he lives in the end, is to be marked by First, sober prayers, as we see in verse 7. Second, by sincere love, as we see in verse 8. Thirdly, by sacrificial hospitality, as we see in verse 9. And fourthly, by a serving mindset, as we will see in verses 10 and 11. Peter calls Christians to pursue these four characteristics, no matter what stage or what circumstance of life they're in. These sweeping instructions are vital because, brothers and sisters, they bring clarity on how we must live for the glory of God as we wait for His glory to be revealed in Christ at His return. So, as we see first, a Christian is to be marked by sober prayers. Look again at verse 7. Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. There are at least two things that I want you to see here about prayers. Prayer must be serious and it must be structured. 
prayer must first be serious. Peter says in verse 7 that the Christian is to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Three times in this letter, Peter calls Christians to be sober-minded. And unlike the unbelievers that he describes in verses 2 to 5, who live in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, the Christian is called to sound discipline and clarity. Our thoughts shouldn't bounce around uncontrollably. And be careful. Peter is not describing the type of person who is so stoic and serious, right, that they would pop a blood vessel if they saw someone else laughing. You know, that kind of unapproachable, unapproachably serious person that when you see them, you fix your posture, you avoid eye contact. Uh, And that's not who Peter has in mind. You know, oftentimes that kind of unapproachably serious person, they're just putting on a disguise to keep people at a distance so that they wouldn't be exposed for how shallow they really are. But instead, Peter is describing a person who is so informed by the reality that, that the Lord is returning soon, that the end of all things is at hand, that he has a serious awareness of when he should weep, when he should laugh, when he should mourn, and when he should dance. He's not disproportionate or backwards in any of these ways. Right? He understands that the near return of Christ is at hand, and therefore, therefore he must be sobered by that fact and reality. <clears throat> this is especially necessary in our day, for we live in the world where people laugh when they should cry, and cry when they should laugh. Right? Where tragedy becomes comedy, and where people sell their soul for the trivial. Furthermore, there's hysteria at every corner and a terrifying uncertainty with the present, let alone the future. And we must not be naive to think that Christians are not conditioned uh, by our culture in this regard. I mean, take, for example, your typical 10 minutes spent on something like Facebook. Right? In the span of 10 minutes, you can read someone's grieving posts about... <laughs> about the evil of murder of children in the womb, right? And right under it, you'll be followed by a picture of someone on vacation, followed by a shared article on the prevalence of racism in our land, followed next by someone sharing a video of a girl getting hit in the head with a shovel, followed by a comment sending positive thoughts and prayers to the victims out in France, right? And followed by a funny meme. And it's impossible to properly and appropriately react to that type of intake of content, of tragedy, of triumph, of triviality. You try to figure out where exactly you are. And, and then you just realize that when this information is consumed at this rate, it creates an effect. The result of which is the, solem- is, is the loss of solemn, thoughtful, serious awareness of what is really going on. Because how can you react properly? have a proper emotional and spiritual response to triumph and tragedy at such a quick rate. And so, this is just one example of the many ways in which we're conditioned into triviality by our culture. But Peter says that this must not be so for the Christian. The Christian must be serious. Peter says the Lord can return at any moment. right? And we have every reason to be confident in this reality. And the proper response to the surprise of many is serious prayer. 
is serious prayer. Of all things that Peter could have said regarding what we must first do in light of the fact that the end is at hand, he's calling Christians to pray. I mean, I could think of a hundred things that for me seem more important than praying at the face of something imminent before me. And yet Peter is saying, no, pray. And the idea is not uh, simply so that you can pray, but in order to pray more effectively. Because our prayers are informed by the serious reality that life is not just fun and games. Now this further means that our prayers shouldn't just be serious, but they should also be structured. Again, I'm not talking about some kind of cold, robotic structure, some kind of mechanical prayers. All I'm trying to say is that Peter is, uh, is implying that Christians should not pray, right, uncontrollably, like chickens with their heads cut off, running around in different directions, dominated by whatever is trending at that moment. <clears throat> when you pray, your prayers should be intelligible, right? I mean, he's not saying babble things that you don't understand or, that things, uh, uh, or, or babble things that those around you don't understand <clears throat> or comprehend. He's not saying ramble on and, and say whatever you're moved to say. Instead, he's talking about sober, thoughtful, planned out communication with the Lord in light of what is revealed in God's word. So I ask you, reflect. Reflect on your prayer life. Do you start to pray and then think? Or do you think and then pray? Do you start at all? Or or do the uncertain circumstances of life cause you to panic? Cause you to not come before your sovereign God? Are you quick to share and post or quick to bow and pray? Do you pray in your home? Do you pray with your kids? Do you pray with your friends? Do you pray with your brothers and sisters? Or do you hope that the Lord does not return during one of your community groups or your men's breakfast because you're resting while your brothers and sisters are praying? Do you allow God through His Word, to inform you on what you should pray about. Brothers and sisters, consider the implications of these questions. I'm, I'm just a visiting brother in Christ. And I'm going off of previous interaction. excuse me, if I'm going off of previous interactions, it seems that as a church you have been blessed by saints who pray. And praise God for that. And praise God that He is gracious towards those of us who are slow to pray. I thank God for convicting us through His Word and for giving us many examples. I'm sure giving you many examples at Veritas. Faithful members as examples from whom you can learn seriousness and structure even if you struggle to pray. That you as well may be marked by sober prayers in the name of Christ as you wait for Christ. Secondly, Peter says in verse 8 that every Christian is to be marked by sincere love. He says in verse 8, Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Take note of two qualities that make up sincere love, as we see in verse 8. Sincere love must be earnest, and it must be enduring. Peter says Christians must persist in their love for one another, earnestly. He's talking about an intense and a sincere love. In your midst, there must be an affection and goodwill towards each other, to the degree that your earnestness is stretched out. Your love for one another should not cease. And we must not forget that Peter 
is calling Christians to this type of love against the backdrop of constant hostility and pain and suffering uh, uh, for, the, for their faith. <clears throat> and he's also talking Christians uh, to love this kind of, in this kind of way against the backdrop of the near return of Christ, who loved us earnestly first by laying down his life for us. That is why Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. <clears throat> so then, the intimacy of God's love is to fuel your intimacy uh, and the intimacy of your love for one another. The love of God for you in Christ is to be the fuel and the oxygen that grows the flame of your earnest love for the 150 or 200 people or so sitting next to you and in the rooms next to you. Remember that Peter is writing this letter to Christians who are going through various trials, brothers and sisters. And isn't it true that it is so hard for us to be concerned about others in the midst of our own trials? We could be so centered, so focused on what we're going through that we forget about everybody uh, around us. We could be so disconnected, so, so self-centered in the midst of our trials. And yet, Peter emphasizes, above all, even in the midst of hardships, be earnest in your love for one another. It means that you don't quit loving your brother or sister the moment that they sinned against you or the moment that they don't thank you or reciprocate in their love quickly enough. Peter is saying don't condition your love based on what you can get in return. I can't, again, I, I thank God for the earnest love in your midst and I'm sure that you notice it and thank God as well. And I hope that you take what Peter is saying here and you devote yourself. Devote yourself to stretching the bounds of your love just a bit more whenever the opportunity is presented. You know, I have what I consider to be a pretty old 26-year-old body. Um, I beat it up with sports and <laughs> habitual dinner after 10. And, the, you know, there was a, a time, there used to be a time when I was not able to stretch past my shins uh, and then one day, I randomly saw my three-year-old son scratching his face with his foot when he was sitting uh, in the back of uh, his, in his car seat. You know, and it hit me. You know, I could probably stretch further. L little, li little by little, but at least past the shins. I could reach my swollen ankles. You know, and, and, and sometimes we may think that it's impossible. It's impossible uh, to stretch the earnestness of our love. You know, you might think that you cannot love any more earnestly, right? You might think that you can't add another relationship into your life, right? You simply can't find the extra time in your week to meet with another person or to serve them or to love them, right? But that maybe you can stretch your circle of brothers or sisters who you're close with, stretch it just a bit past the shins. Maybe you've noticed, right, a person in your church who is particularly in need of company or encouragement. <clears throat> Next time you're hanging out, invite them. Seek them out. Right? Make it a habit to push your relationships further in order to multiply the opportunities of love to flourish. Stretch further the comfort level of who you talk with or more importantly, what you talk about. Look to love and meet the need of someone who you know you can't get anything back from in return. <clears throat> there are many ways to stretch the earnestness of our love 
towards those whom God has placed in our lives as an occupation during these last times. Love first must be earnest. Notice also that love must be enduring. Look again at verse 8. Peter says, keep loving, one, uh, keep loving since love covers a multitude of sins. You know, a helpful way to understand uh, what Peter has in mind here when he says that love covers is understanding that the word cover can carry the meaning of hindering the knowledge of a thing. And this is helpful because it suggests that love helps us deal with the sins of others by moving past them without constantly returning back to them, to those sins, right? It allows us to deal with other Christians without raising the knowledge uh, of others about those sins after those sins have been dealt with. Love does not allow past sins to cloud future interactions. For where, where there is enduring love, there is a capacity to move past small and even large offenses. Now, Peter is not saying that, that our love can pay the price of sins, right? Christ alone did that. We just sang about that and prayed and read God's word that testified to that. But our love can imitate the mercy of God. Peter is not directly quoting Proverbs 10, 12, but what he says here reflects the language of Proverbs 10. When, when we read that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses, right? Do you catch the opposition between the two? Enduring love is the opposite of causing stir, is the opposite of stirring up strife and division. <clears throat> and the idea isn't that Christians are allowed to ignore sin or that they're now allowed to not deal with their sin, not at all. But rather, it allows Christians to move past sin after it has been addressed uh, without allowing strife to grow. You know, brothers and sisters, Peter is concerned with shallow love. He's concerned with that greeting card, hallmark, postcard, XOXO, I heart you type of love that welcomes behaviors that destroy the church. A type of shallow love that allows for angry or bitter resentment and disagreement where all hope of reconciliation is lost. If someone's preferences step on your toes and offend you, you can move past that. You know, you can and should cover that with love. But sin cannot be ignored. Again, I do not think that what Peter is saying in this text is that we can ignore simple, demand, simple demands from Jesus like the one that we see in Matthew 18. I want to ask you to please turn your Bibles quickly to Matthew 18. <clears throat> I just want to point out a few things here that I think will help us understand Peter a little bit better. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. We must never ignore to do what Jesus says here. So I think what Peter seems to be saying in our text is what we see a little bit further down in Matthew 18 in verses 21 and 22. Like Peter comes up to Jesus and asks in verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, 
I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And I think that is what Peter is hinting at in our text if you flip back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Enduring love covers a multitude of sins. It could be translated as the whole number of sins. Enduring love then is able to deal and move past sins, however many there may be. Seven, 77, 77 million, however many there may be. It is able to move past them and treat the offender with further earnest love. Listen close, brothers and sisters. There is such a danger for you as a church if you forget that forgiveness is not to be limited but abundant. Forgiveness is to be overflowing and available to all just as the measureless grace of God is poured out upon us in Jesus. And I want you to never forget that there is nothing noble about saying with your lips that you covered the sins of someone else against you and being dishonest about that being true or not. Oftentimes, what is really the case is that we just don't want to talk with the one who sinned against us. We don't want to have that awkward conversation. We don't want to meet them and look them in the eyes and say, Brother, sister, you, you sinned against me. In reality, right, we still have bitter feelings so often when we say, oh, I covered that in love. It is sinful to say you covered a sin or an offense in love. But in reality, you're just waiting for enough time to pass that you can become indifferent towards that pain by becoming indifferent towards your brother or sister. Functionally even, we can excommunicate our brother or sister in our heart by refusing to treat them any longer as a sibling in Christ. It will be subtle, of course, but we can refuse to talk to them. Oh, we can refuse to, to have them over and share a meal with them. We can pretend that we didn't see them and walk right by them. We can disappear from their life without notice. Brothers and sisters, this is sinful. When we excommunicate our brothers and sisters from our heart simply because they sinned against us, and Peter says here, no, love must endure. It must move past sins and offenses after they have been dealt with without constantly saying, hey, remember, you sinned against me. Without using past offenses as trump, trump cards uh, that are convenient for you in the midst of an argument. Love must be earnest, brothers and sisters. It must be enduring. As we move our way through this text, so far we have seen that the end of all things is at hand. And because this is so, Christians are to be marked by sober prayers and by sincere love. And thirdly, Peter says in verse 9, that Christians are to be marked by sacrificial hospitality. Look again at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? There's an obvious connection between prayer and loving God's people and hospitality. It could even be said that prayer to God and the love of God's people gives birth to hospitality. And Peter singles out this form of hospit uh, excuse me, this form of service specifically, and he very basically says, show hospitality. He says, open your home for the sake of receiving and serving your brother or sister in, uh, in Christ. And I want you to notice that Peter intends for hospitality to be both persistent and peaceful. Persistent and peaceful. Notice first that hospitality is to be persistent. What I mean by this is, well, you know, surely I don't have to convince you, if you're a Christian, that you must be persistent in your prayer and that you must persist in your love. But here, 
Peter places hospitality in that same vital group of traits uh, that Christians are to pursue as they wait for the return of Christ. In your Bible, verse 9 probably reads, show hospitality, but it's more accurate to translate that as simply, be hospitable. Peter doesn't say do this in, in some seasons of your life. Okay, think about that. He doesn't say do this when it's convenient, and at other times, don't do it. Right? Hospitality must define who you are if you are a Christian. Which is why I think it's misleading to suggest, as some commentators do, that Peter really is only concerned about you know, traveling Christians as they go through cities and, 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 and you must open your home to them as they travel through. I mean, I, I think, I think that's, that's probably not enough, right? Because, I mean, we know that hotels and inns and cheap rooms for rent have always been terrible. And Christians uh, probably have always been in a position that if they're traveling through summer, it's probably much nicer to stay with another Christian. I mean, I know this even now. My father works as a long-distance uh, truck driver. <clears throat> and sometimes when he's in an unknown city or, or town throughout our country, he calls me and he asks me to find on the Internet a place for him to stay overnight. You know, and I often read the reviews that customers leave online uh, and I'm left horrified. You know, I read things like, I think there was a crime committed in my room before I got the room. Uh, there's still yellow caution tape in the bathroom, uh, but the room was $29, so I'll give it two and a half stars. And, you know, I frequently have to call my father back and say, you're sleeping in your truck tonight. And it would be, you know, best if you left town altogether. Uh, it's not safe where you're at. Uh, you know, because inns and motels are frightening. They always have been. And I really don't think that Peter is concerned about hospitality because inns and hotels were frightening in his uh, day uh, as well. Of course, there's a, you know, there is a time and place to open your home for Christians. There's obviously room for that. But I think if we look even at the immediate context, we see that Peter's interest in Christians being persistent in, ho in hospitality is for the purpose of promoting Christian worship and fellowship. I mean, remember, Peter's urging Christians to live in a way that reflects the urgency of the nearness and the return of Christ. And so Christians must pray and, and love one another uh, in, that, uh, in, in the face of that reality. So why else would he want them to be persistent in opening up their homes if it is not to aid in prayer and love. As we will see in a moment, create an environment where serving others can take place. <clears throat> Important things can happen over a dinner table. Right? You could feed prayer. You can nourish love. So think about your church. Think about your church. I mean, some of you may be surprised by this, but do you know that there are people sitting next to you that are in desperate and persistent need of hospitality. They're in desperate need of, of a warm and loving embrace of your home and hospitality and affection. I mean, because it's possible that they live in a home where, where they are the only Christian. I'm guessing that there are younger kids and teens at your church, as well as young college students, some who are away from their families, some who eat ramen noodles five days a week, Right. Imagine how encouraging it could be to a professing Christian if you invite them over for a hot meal and put time aside to pray for them, to remain faithful as their faith gets attacked head on in their schools, in their colleges, and in their universities. Imagine what that could do. 
I'm guessing that there are single men and women at your church. Single men and women who are constantly bombarded with unfair questions, unfair pressures, and expectations by their friends, their family, their culture, or their subculture. Imagine how timely it could be to have them over for breakfast on Saturday, to put time aside to ponder on the goodness of God's love and happiness and fulfillment that is found in the pursuit of holiness. I'm guessing that there are newlyweds at your church. Imagine what could happen if you invite them over for coffee and cake and put time aside to urge them to start preparing now for the future task of something like parenting. I know that there are mothers, I know this for a fact, (laughs) at your church who work 100-hour weeks And that there are fathers of kids who work the same amount of hours if you combine their employment and their responsibilities of raising children. But imagine what could happen if you have them over (coughs) just to have a normal conversation where grown-ups talk, where the kids are looked after. And you can all remind each other of the miracle of God's love and our union with Christ. In the midst of crippling boredom and repetition, that can creep up every day, diaper after diaper, meal after meal, clocking in and clocking out, over and over. Imagine what could happen. I'm guessing, the church this size, that there are widows and widowers in your church. Now you may not know this because uh, widows and widowers tend to be mature and wise and humble, not exactly the type of people who talk about themselves. But a church this size, I'm sure they're here, or or you have friends who have... uh, who know widows and widowers, imagine opening your home for them for the purpose of pointing out God's grace and care in their life and how God is using them to teach the rest of us what it's like to still worship God when you don't get what you want or when what you've had gets taken away from you. And imagine what can happen. So regarding this conversation or this subject of opening your homes, if you still live with your parents, ask them, hey, can I have my friends over? I mean, we're probably going to eat and goof off, but maybe over dinner, dad or mom, you guys can tell us about how you met and how you fell for dad's corny jokes. And maybe you can share lessons that you've learned or ways that you can caution us so that we can learn and honor God. Spouses, talk to each other. And plan to have people over. Friends, talk to each other. And actively plan to open your homes for the sake of serving and honoring your brothers and sisters. And write this down. Note this somehow. Or else you will forget. I forget all the time. I mean, I'm not at the point yet where I could plan my own surprise birthday parties. But still, you know, I forget things all the time. And so, if, you, if this is on your heart now, write this down. Plan this. Make plans this week to have people over in your homes for the purpose of serving them and aiding uh, prayer and love. And you know, I'm sure I miss many groups of people in your church and probably many examples, examples of why being persistent in hospitality goes hand in hand with prayer and love and service. <clears throat> and also in my examples, I ask you to imagine what can happen if you open your homes. But by that, I don't want to communicate that it doesn't happen in your midst. By the grace of God, I'm sure it does. And what you should take away from Peter this morning regarding hospitality is that if you are hospitable, continue to persist. If you've never started, start and persist. 
Now, Peter also says, your persistent hospitality is to be peaceful. I want us to spend just a little bit of time understanding this. Notice again in verse 9, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, Christians must show hospitality without grumbling, without grudging the fact that people are in their home, right? And without counting the expenses uh, involved. Of course, this doesn't mean that there aren't costs. By definition, hospitality involves sacrificing your time, your preferences, sacrificing your interests, sacrificing your money. You will have to give these things up. And as you do, do not grumble. Obviously not to those whom you're hosting. And also not before God. <clears throat> I think people laughed because they've been there. So, but specifically, I think what Peter has in mind regarding uh, peaceful hospitality, in addition to not grumbling about the sacrifices involved, is making sure that you don't open your home for the purpose of grumbling or voicing displeasure about other Christians, about other brothers and sisters. There must be no gossip or slander present when Christians gather. Hospitality must not be marked by repeated words of complaint towards others. <clears throat> In many ways, the one, the one who opens their home is responsible for being on guard to make sure that peace is upheld within the church. <clears throat> Even if you're not the one who voices complaints towards others, but if you opened your home, and your guests raise secret displeasure towards another brother or sister. Stop them right in their tracks and tell them that now they have to pray for the one that they slandered. And they must recommit to loving them and serving them. It's their fault. Right? right? You see what you did, right? I opened my home to you and you drop slander on my lap. I hope you're happy. Right? Now you can't leave until you pray. Sweetie, hide their kids. I mean, their kids. Their kids and their keys. They're not going anywhere. You know, that's, that, that should be our mindset. We should always be on guard and, and, and ready uh, 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 to stop those who are slandering. But in all seriousness, as you open your homes, you must protect peace on your end. And if your guests have complained towards others, then encourage them, brothers and sisters. Encourage them to not gossip. Encourage them to not slander. But to speak first with those who they are complaining about for the purpose of loving reconciliation. It is so dangerous and prevalent when Christians open up their homes and all you hear is bitterness and complaint about other Christians who are not as Christian as they are uh, over dinner. <clears throat> Come on, Pat. And so in addition to being persistent in opening your homes for others, your homes are to be marked uh, as havens of peace and unity that promote peace and unity within the church. Your homes are to be marked by prayer and love when you get together. Again, my dear brothers and sisters, the end of all things is at hand, says Peter. Therefore, we must be marked by sober prayers, by sincere love, by sacrificial hospitality, and by having, fourthly, a serving mindset. A serving mindset towards your brothers or sisters is the fourth trait uh, of those who by faith embrace the near return of Christ. Look again at verse 10. <clears throat> Peter goes on to say, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Peter here uses the word gift in its full sense. The all-encompassing gift of divine grace as well as the spiritual uh, gifts that result from it. In other words, he basically says that by definition, every Christian has received a gift of God's grace. There's not a single one of you 
who is getting out of this. If you are in Christ, the Lord, in some specific way, it may not be in the greatest way that you imagined, but in some way, He has blessed you with the gift of serving others. Peter does not list specific spiritual gifts like Paul does in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or uh, or Ephesians 4, but he does communicate two very important truths about the gift of divine grace and the spiritual gifts that result from it. And what I want you to observe uh, uh, is these two truths that make up a serving mindset. Peter says that spiritual gifts are to care for the needs of others because these gifts come from God. Notice first that God has gifted Christians with various gifts to care for the various needs of your brothers and sisters. I want to point something out to you. Flip your Bibles back to 1 Peter chapter 1, the beginning of this letter to verse 6. <clears throat> before verse 6, we read, uh, this was read to us. Before verse 6, Peter was talking about the power of God guarding the faith and salvation of Christians a salvation that will, be, uh, that will be revealed at the return of Christ. Now look at what he says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Right? That's what this letter is about. Being faithful to God in the midst of various trials as we look to the return of Christ. Note the word various in various trials. Now look back at chapter 4, verse 10 to our text. Peter says that God's varied grace is provided so that we can care for the varied needs of our brothers and sisters. It's the same word. Our various trials are met met by God's various grace. Okay, so I want you to think about this. Is there 10,000 possible ways that trials can enter into our lives? Well, of course. 10,000 at least between adversity and affliction and opposition and pushback and setbacks and temptation and pain, the plate is full. And yet we see in verse 10 that God's varied grace is provided so that a church can care for the thousands of needs of our brothers and sisters in the midst of our trials. Think about it, right? We don't have, we don't have needs unless we're going through some type of trial. And so Peter is calling us to a serving mindset where we can care for the needs of others. And he wants us to understand that we've been granted these certain gifts for the very purpose of meeting the need of our brothers and sisters. We are not allowed to hoard and protect our, our, our gifts and, you know, and bottle them up, put them in our pockets and only use them when we need them. No, this is for the purpose of serving others. <clears throat> we must recognize that this is utterly different from how so many Christians in our day and age think about spiritual gifts. Christians are often concerned about figuring out what kind of gifts they have, but not for the purpose of caring for others, right? Instead of as a path for self-fulfillment. They want to discover their gifts so as to establish their own identity or their own worth. You know, I've had people tell me that they serve in a ministry because that is what fulfills them. That is what they do because it fulfills them. Which, on the surface, doesn't sound that bad until you rephrase it in this way. I refuse to serve in this or that ministry because it isn't what I want. It isn't what fulfills me. Do you see the problem? I think Peter from verse 10 would say, 
What does it matter what you want? What does it matter what you want if you're refusing to meet the need of someone with the gift that you have been graciously given? I mean, don't you see that God has graciously saved you and gifted you to care for the needs of your brothers or sisters in this way? This is another reason why identifying your gifts and your skills for service by yourself is a dangerous thing. You know, I'm afraid you could be tempted into ignoring some of the gifts that you have that kind of get your hands dirty or the gifts that really don't get a lot of recognition. Oh, you know, I'm not that gifted at washing floors. Yeah, you know, I'm not buying into that. You know, as the saying goes, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a church to raise a servant or at least a church to identify the gifts that God has given you with which you can care for the needs of your spiritual siblings. I have seen so many Christians sit by and do nothing when other Christians are drowning in needs. I often uh, ask myself, why? Why does that take place? And here Peter is pointing out the the problem that, that, that often results in why Christians sit stagnant even though they've been given everything to serve others. It's because they haven't embraced that their gifts are for them for the purpose of serving others, not so that they can serve themselves or be patted on their back for their gifts. And notice that we are to care for others as we seek to serve them because spiritual gifts come from God. Look at the first part of verse 11. Peter goes on to say, Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves with his hands as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Here Peter mentions two broad categories of ministries, speaking and serving. And he says, both come from God. Whoever speaks in the gathering of believers is to speak the utterances of God. Right? Peter is not talking about having casual conversations when we gather together. He's referring to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Although it is perfectly fine to speak God's Word to one another in our conversations. But note this. Those who preach and teach must depend upon the gift of the Spirit to proclaim the oracles of God. The very words of Scripture. Of course, every Christian must handle the Word of God. But those who are equipped for preaching and teaching have a special charge to tend to the flock, as Peter will go on to say in uh, in, in, in chapter 5, verse 2. And the point that Peter is making is that we are not to take it upon ourselves to make up what we will say in our care and service of others. The words of those who serve through speaking come from God. Brothers and sisters, we have not been given the right to put the Word of God aside and make up for ourselves our thoughts and ideas and how we're going to serve those with, uh, whom we are encouraging. We must go to God's Word and with God's Word minister to the needs of others. Also, the strength to serve in any physical way also comes from God. For God supplies it as we also see in verse 11. Again, Peter's talking about any kind of service intended to meet the need or provide necessary help or supply for sustaining someone or anything in the life of another uh, in the church. Jesus supplied the root uh, of serving to himself as one who came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve. So we see here that human power alone is not enough. Relying on your own strength or your own inertia to get things done in service will soon reside and result in pride and burnout, as was prayed earlier. Peter says, serve in the spirit of Christ, for Christ came to serve. He served, 
And Christ never looked to his own interest. He never looked to his own reward. He never cared about his own recognition. He often just shh, you know, shushed people up, right? This was purpose, purposeful. And this kind of desire to serve without recognition or getting anything back in return, this type of power to serve comes from God. And Christians must be marked by a serving mindset that uses spiritual gift to care for the needs of others because, brothers and sisters, these gifts come freely from God and they both result in God's glory and praise. And praise Him for that. Well, as we have seen, the near return of Christ is a glorious future reality for Christians and also it must define and alter how we live our life. This is what we must be marked by. Peter says these four things are are to characterize the lives of Christians. We are to be first marked by sober prayers because of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Right? And we're living in the final stage of God's redemptive plan. Praying to God in light of what he has done in Christ should call us to, to uh, and enable us to sincerely love our brothers and sisters and care for them and love them. And our love is to be marked by sacrificial hospitality and also, as we've just seen, by a serving mindset to care for the needs of others uh, with the gifts that God has given us from God. And I want us to close our time by by embracing afresh what Peter says in the second half of verse 11. Look at uh, the second half of verse 11, and this is how we'll close our time. Peter says in verse 11, Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. My brothers and sisters, your love, your prayers, your hospitality, your service, your everything depends on God's grace in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ for to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. At the beginning and end of every day, it is not about us. It's about the glory and power of God through Jesus Christ. Right? It's, not, it's not about the success of your efforts or, or, or your fervency or your homes or your possessions or your ministries or your skills. We must see that God did not just save us in Jesus, but he gifts us all things in Jesus so that we would live for the glory of God through Jesus as we wait for our precious Lord and Savior to return. Amen bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the immeasurable grace that we have received in Jesus. He is our hope and he's the object of our longing. And as we wait for him, we meekly ask that you would continue to grow our devotion to come before you in prayer and that there would be a genuine sincerity to our love for one another and that it would result in sacrificial hospitality and ongoing service. And we ask in the name of our soon returning Lord, Jesus Christ, that you would bless your people and that you would grow us for the sake of your glory. Amen.